Welcome, everybody, to part four of our series that we're in right now called Further Faster. And we're going to do start off this morning by asking if anybody out there has done some DIY projects, maybe this past summer during a stay at home. We got some DIY or do it yourself projects going on. Awesome. If you're watching online, drop what you've done, drop that project in the comment section below. I have to know who I can ask for a hand every once in a while and what those skills. No, just kidding. I've done some DIYs. I've done some projects, uh, especially during the stay-at-home time. Uh, I've replaced or installed like 13 light fixtures at my house, a new floor and a bedroom, eight yards of mulch, around four new trees. I mean, by the time the summer was done and I could leave my house, I think that it would have been easier just to build an entirely new house. Of course, that, that isn't the truth, but like I've learned a few things along the way. I've learned the most critical skill. And those of you who are thinking about DIY project, whatever it might be, you're going to want to write this one down. It's a gem. The most important, the most critical skill to any do-it-yourself projects has nothing to do with craftsmanship or attention to detail, whether you can paint or drywall, electric, whatever it is. No, no, no. Those, those skills would be nice. But the most important, the most critical skill there is in any project is knowing where your limits are, is knowing when to stop, put down the brush, put down the tools, and to ask for help. Because there's something about us, we don't want to ask for help. There's something about us that like asking for help is a sign of weakness. We, we don't want to do that. I learned this the hard way. I did a DIY project not too long ago, and uh, it was a replacing a faucet sprayer. I'm like, this is an easy project. Like, what's the, difference? what's the difference between electricity and plumbing? It's just wet, you know, electricity. We can do this. If I can do the electric, I can do the plumbing. No problem. Totally a problem. You can see where this is going. So it's like on the top of the spray nozzle, I'm like, okay, you know, leave the water off. You know, that's not going to be a problem. Start taking things apart. Pretty soon I'm taking a lot of pieces apart. They're like stacked up along the counter. I'm thinking I may have gotten in a little bit over my head, but I'm, tr- I'm, 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 I'm trolling ahead. I'm going to do this thing. I've got this. I take one part off, and all of a sudden water starts spraying everywhere. And so I'm like, oh, it definitely should have shut the water off. Okay, so I'm like, get a towel. I'm holding the towel on the spraying faucet. With the other hand, I'm now reaching underneath the cabinet to try to do what I should have done originally and shut off the water. Except for I can only reach the cold water. And so I shut that off thinking, well, it's like half the water, right? So that's, no, some of you are shaking your head. No, that's not true at all. What it did is only make the spraying water scalding hot. So one hand is getting burned. The other hand is trying to reach the, the, the hot water. I'm yelling, honey, Kristen, come here. You know, help me shut off the water. She comes running and see water spraying everywhere slips on the floor, bites it. I finally give up on taking the the, the, the water out of the kitchen. You know, that's just going to spray everywhere. Both hands now shut the water off. I step back to assess the damage. I've got water everywhere. My hand is on fire, and my wife has a concussion. No joke. She's okay now. And I realized something in that moment. I should have called a plumber. (laughs) As simple as it is. I should have asked for help. Some of you have had that same experience. You should have asked for help. You, it would have been better to ask for help. Why don't we ask for help? Why, why do we do the thing where we drive around the block eight times looking for the restaurant that the GPS unit says is there? It's gonna, one more pass. I know I'm going to find it. This is the time. One more, and we never do. Why don't we just stop and ask for help? No, no, it's here. It's got to be here. One more pass. Why do we do the thing where we have to try, we think we can do it all, and in the end, we end up doing nothing? 
I want to be the person to get the kids ready for school, get them off, crush it at work, come home, homemade dinner on the table at six, extended bedtimes because I'm a perfect parent. I can do it all my, myself. I don't need any help from anybody. Why do we do it? Why do we do it? Because of this one word right here, control. Control is the word. I want to be in control. Asking for help, in fact, means surrendering control. If you're a student right now, and maybe you never, like me, like graduated from high school and somehow never figured out how to write a paper, and then you get to college, and everybody wants you to write a paper, and you're like, I, I thought this was a math class. You still have to write a paper. Come on. I don't know how to do this, and you don't want to ask for help. Why? Control, because if you ask for help in writing the paper, then you can't write the paper at 3 or 4 a.m. anymore like I did. Right? You've got to do it on somebody else's time. It means surrendering control. You've got to do things like someone else does things. Whether it's vacuuming or bedtimes or how to cut the grass, when you ask for help, you surrender control over that thing, and you just have to stand by and watch as somebody else does it differently than how you would have done it. But another thing happens. Asking for help not only surrenders control. If you don't ask for help, all of a sudden there's like this lid on top of what you can do, what you can accomplish. You have now become your own lid. You'll never figure out how to write papers. You can't do it all. You'll never find the restaurant. You are now your own lid by not asking for help. Now, this thing is true. It's true in parenting. It's true at work and career. It's true in school. You can see all of that. It's also true in your relationship with God. Like, none of us want to be the person to, like, ask for help. I don't know. What does discipleship look like? Nobody's ever told me before. What does it mean to, to grow in, in faith and knowledge of Jesus? I don't know. Nobody's ever modeled that before. I don't want to have to ask for help because what if, what if they challenge me or encourage me? What if suddenly I have to surrender control? I don't want to ask for help. And so we're going to see that in a story this morning and continuing on in Luke 15 about somebody who didn't want to ask for help, who wanted to live a DIY kind of life in faith. But before we do, let's review what we heard last week. In Luke chapter 15, it's this beautiful story that Jesus told. Remember, he's talking to the tax collectors and sinners over here. He's also talking to the Pharisees and teachers of the law, the religious types over here. And Jesus tells this beautiful story, and he says, in this story, a man had two sons. And as a younger kid, he comes up to his dad, and he says, Dad, you know what's going to happen. We all know what's going to happen. Dad, eventually you're going to get old, and you're going to get frail, and suddenly one day you're going to die. And then me and my older brother, we're going to get all of your stuff. So, Dad, can we just fast forward through all of that, and can I just get your stuff early? Can we just skip to the end and pretend you're dead so I can get half of your stuff and be on with our life? Do you know how insulting that would be to a father then? How insulting would it be to a father today? And as Jesus tells this story, his dad, against his better judgment, against all odds, he does. This story says that he he divided his property. Literally, that word is bios. It's where we get our word biology. He divided his life, his bios, his livelihood between these boys. He says, son, there you go. You can have it. And the kid thanks dad. He takes his half of his dad's life, and he runs away to a far-off place, and he squanders it. He spends it all on baseball cards and bubble gum. Not exactly, but the truth is much more nefarious, and kids are watching, so we'll just kind of leave it at that. He wakes up hungover and hungry one day and decides, I, I, I got to go home. I got no choice. So he comes, the long trek home, and what he wasn't expecting, as Jesus is telling the story, he wasn't expecting to come home and see his dad 
on the front porch apparently has been waiting and watching every day since he left. Watching, peering over the hill, waiting, hoping for his son to start coming home. And when he sees it, listen, church, when he sees his kid coming home, he's got like this dress, this tunic kind of thing going on. It doesn't matter. He can't walk. He has to run. So he hikes up his tunic thing. He tucks it into his leather belt. And he's showing a little skin, but that's okay. Sky's out, thighs out. This dad is, is running. He's not walking. He's running to his son wraps his arm around, and we heard this story. We heard the story last week. Robe on his back, ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, fat and calf. It's a party because my son, who was lost, is found again. I thought he was dead. He's alive. And as Jesus is telling this story, he finishes this story, and there is not a dry eye in sight. Everybody's choked up. I'm not crying. You're crying. It's just one problem. Jesus wasn't finished with the story yet. That was simply the ending of Act 1. He picks it up. In Act 2, Luke chapter 15, verse 25, well, we're going to pick it up today. You can follow along. Your Bible's on the phone. Also, the words are going to be on the screen below and behind me. Luke 15, verse 25. Meanwhile, while all that was happening, the older son was out in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, and so he called one of the servants, and he asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. You know what I wonder? I wonder how many days that older brother spent working that field. How many days that older brother spent with his hands in that same patch of dirt day after day? Hundreds? Absolutely. Thousands? Probably. 10,000 or more days? possible. Every day nearly out in the field, working the field by the sweat of his brow, serving his dad. And now that kid, that, that, that screw up who wasted all of my dad's life on bubblegum and, and, and baseball cards comes walking home. You've got to be kidding me. After everything that I've done. No, he's angry. He comes up to the house. Notice he doesn't go in the house. He goes within earshot just enough to get somebody's attention so he can ask him to come on out. And we see that in verse 28. The older brother became angry. He refused to go in. And so his father now comes out and pleads with him. But he answered his father, look. Listen to his language here. Listen to the relational dynamics. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat, far less expensive than a fattened calf. Fun fact. So I could celebrate with my friends. Not you, Dad. I don't want to celebrate with you, Dad. I want to celebrate with my friends. But then when this son of yours who has squandered your property, your life with prostitutes, not baseball cards, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Those of you who are vegans are going to be happy to know that this is a rare occasion that they would eat meat. It was so rare, in fact, it was considered a delicacy. And when they did this, they wouldn't have celebrated with just their immediate family members. They would have called everybody out in the village. 
statistically probably 30, 40, maybe 50 people would have come out from the village and celebrate. This dad wasn't ashamed of his son who came home. This dad was proud because he finally had him back, safe and sound. Let me ask you a question. You don't have to show a hand. Don't recognize anything. But I just want to ask if, if you have had the impression at times that some of the most religious people that you've encountered, that oftentimes very, very religious people also come across as very, very unloving. Which is a little weird because you think like religious people serving or at least trying to follow Jesus should come off as very extraordinarily loving because that's who Jesus was. In fact, people who don't even follow Jesus are like, I don't know about the whole rising from the dead thing, the miracles, I'm not really sure about, but what Jesus, was he loving? Absolutely. I mean, I aspire to live in love like Jesus did, even if people who don't necessarily purport to follow him. But sometimes religious people come across very, very unloving. For any, for any natural disaster, whether it could be avoided, couldn't be avoided, whatever the disaster is, there's, it seems like there's always someone, some kind of religious authority, who's going to get on who's going to get in front of a major news outlet, a camera, and say, listen, because of X, Y, and Z, these people have caused this, and they have brought this upon themselves. And you're like, how does this always, who do they find? It's just somehow the case that, like, religious people often come across as some of the most unloving people on the planet. And I think that's one of the points that Jesus is trying to make as he shares this story. And he's like, you know, that's what religion looks like apart from grace. That's what religion looks like apart from mercy. That's what do-it-yourself religion turns into. It's inevitable. <laughs> uh, story time. Some of you, parents or caregivers to small children, have had the unenviable task of potty training a small child. And those of you who have gone through it, you are heroes. Those of you who have yet to go through that experience, but will, may God have mercy on your souls. Uh, you, you've tried this before, some of you, or you've heard stories. Uh, friends of mine, not my own children, just to be clear, but some friends went through this task with a toddler, a little girl who was very smart and very capable. And so they started teaching her how to potty train, and she picked it up. Surprisingly quick, she picked it up. And so when she asked those magical words that are a delight to any young parent's ears, Mommy, Daddy, may I go to the bathroom? They said, of course, sweetie, you can go to the bathroom. And so she goes away, but she's in the bathroom for a suspicious amount of time. If you've taken care of little kids, you get, like, there's a time, amount of time that passes, and you're just like, yeah, i just, I better go check. And so they go up to the door, and they kind of knock on the door. Honey, is everything okay? And they can just hear sobbing, crying, coming from inside, inside the bathroom. And they're like, okay, honey, we're going to come in now. And they open the door, and there they see their beautiful little girl in church. There's poop everywhere. I mean, it's like sink, it's mirror, it's on her clothes, and they're like, honey, honey, how did you get poop on your face? And she just threw tear-soaked eyes. She's sobbing back, and she goes, I had an accident, and I tried to clean myself up. 
and I realize that that is a graphic picture. But I want you to have that image seared into your brain. That is what religion looks like apart from the love and grace of Jesus. If we wonder why religious people often come across as some of the most unloving people on the planet, it's because we're like this little toddler that's trying to clean ourselves up, and it makes a mess, and it stinks. So you're writing notes, maybe taking them in the Bible next door, and you might be able to write something like this, is that God doesn't want you to try harder to clean yourself up. The point of this whole thing is to trust deeper. You know, imagine that same story told a little bit different way. With instead of the girl trying to try harder and clean herself up, if she's got an accident and she just calls out, Mom, Dad, I had an accident and I need help, and they would come running in. And what kind of disaster would be avoided if we just ask for help and not try to do it yourself? I make a point about the do-it-yourself kind of religion. I got to say something about the, about the control. See, the older brother in this story, he's angry. He's refusing to go in. He can do this himself. He also wants to leverage his control. You know, in fact, both of the brothers in this story, the younger brother and the older brother, they both wanted to leverage control themselves. You know, there's two ways. There's two ways to be your own Lord and Savior. The first way of being your own Lord and Savior is through badness. It's doing, it being bad, being whatever, doing whatever you want to do. And that we saw play out with the younger brother to a T. He can do what he wants, when he wants, with whom he wants. He can smoke it, he can drink it, he can take it. It doesn't matter. In a far-off place, he gets to do what he wants. He gets to maintain control. He gets to be his own Lord and Savior through badness. That's obvious. And it works right up until the place it doesn't. And then it really, really doesn't. And he comes home. But there's another way to assert control. There's another way to leverage influence, to leverage control even over a father. And that's not through badness, that's through goodness. Listen to some of the language that the brother uses in the story. All this time, all these years, I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed an order. Does that sound like a son to you? Or does that sound like a soldier? I've never disobeyed you. I've been slaving for you, and that's what I am to you, and I'm okay with it. I'm your slave. I'm your servant. I'm here to work this patch of dirt for you. For however many years God gives me, I'm going to be here working and serving for you. It's entirely void of any kind of relational tone. In fact, he never calls his dad father. He never calls his brother a brother. He says, this son of yours, and he never addresses his dad even directly. There's two ways to assert control. It's through badness and through goodness. He's like, Dad, I've worked for you this hard and you owe me something. And so, and, and, and so when I want to get what I want, because I put in the time, because I put in the effort, because I put the chips in, now it's time to cash out. Now it's time to leverage that, Dad. You have to do what I said because I've always done what you said. And sometimes we do that. Yeah, sometimes we, we, we do that with God. 
Right? We're like, listen, God, I've always gone through the motions. I've always had this kind of mechanical obedience to my life. I've done it again and again and again. And so, God, if you don't pull through now, when I've always showed up for you then, I'm going to be angry. I'm going to refuse to go in. I'm going to try to control you, God, because I need this to get done. I'm going to pull the lever. I'm going to use my influence. I've always shown up. It's time for you now to make good and to serve me. And the thing about that is like thinking that like the control that we have is somehow taking this whole thing further. God doesn't want your control. Like he's the like, he's like God of the universe. He wants your control. No, God does more with your surrender than your control. And this is true again and again and again. That's what he's asking for. He's not asking you to slave away mechanical obedience. He's asking for surrender. And he's asking for trust, not to do it yourself. But the story, though, isn't finished yet. The story continues on in verse 31. And his dad replies to him now in verse 31. He says, my son. After the older brother, after the older son, he, he, he never refers to his dad as a, as a father. He never uses any relational terms at all. He just starts it off and he says, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He's lost and now he's found I just find, I find so much beauty in the fact that whether it's through badness or whether it's through goodness, the father never stops calling him my son, my daughter. It's who you are. And there's nothing that you could ever do to make me love you more. There's nothing you could ever do to make me love you less. You're my daughter. You're my son. You know, as I share this story, and some of you, you you've heard this before, you know, I just want to make a, a venture, a guess, that the majority of you, some of you are new watching online. You're here maybe for the first time or first couple of times. I know that's true. But the majority of you have been tracking with Encounter for a while, have been tracking with church for a while, like me. I grew up in church. And so I hear this story, and I know what I'm supposed to think. I'm supposed to think I'm probably the older brother in this story. But none of, listen, none of us want to be the older brother in the story. Now, everybody, you know, if we're going to write ourselves in, we're going to be the younger brother, you know, and then I figured it all out. I came to my senses, and I came home. I did that. What does that sound like? I can do it myself. I did it myself. I decided it's time to come home. And now, all of a sudden, I'm the older brother. Listen, I'm not asking you to raise your hand. I'm not asking you if you are the older brother. But what I am going to ask just between you and God and maybe the person that you came here with to talk about on the way home isn't are you the older brother. Just ask yourself this question. Ask somebody this question. Am I older brother-ish? Like, don't, I got a little older brother happening in my heart? A little self-diagnostic tool. Am I, am I older brother-ish? When I put in the time with God, and I go through this obedience kind of thing. And then when God, for whatever reason, in whatever capacity, when God doesn't show up for me, do I get angry? Like, God, you, you were supposed to do something for me there. You are supposed to show up. Come on, God, I showed up for you, and now I'm angry. If you get angry at God over not showing up for you, like you expected him to show up for you, you got a little older brother going on. It's not full-on older brother. It's older brother-ish. 
If you go through life and you've got this kind of mechanical obedience, I don't really know why I do. I don't know why I serve. I don't know why I give. I just kind of do it because I always have. I've been just slaving away, chipping away, same field every day. I don't know why. It's a little, it's not full-on older brother mechanical obedience. It's older brother-ish. If you've kind of like got this, this cold heart, or this, this coldness towards the younger brother, you know, when you, when you wash people with their hands in the air and say, yes, I'm in. I want to be counted with followers of Jesus. I want to acknowledge him before others so that he'll acknowledge me before the Father. And you see that and you're like, nah, I don't know. That happens like once a series, that encounter. If you don't have like that burning passion to say, people, people are living and dying without the hope of Jesus. What a missed opportunity. And you're seeing people come in and don't just like celebrate, celebrate with them. It's not, it's not full on older brother, but it could, it's older brother-ish. And lastly, if you've been kind of going through this thing and you're just trying to earn your love, do it yourself, find love of the Father, and you don't think that you entirely have it quite yet, but if you could just do a little more or sacrifice a little more or get over that next hill, that God would love you just a little bit more. It's, it's older brother-ish. Because what God looks at, when God looks at you and what he says, he calls you, my son, he calls you. My daughter, you are already mine. It's so beautiful. It's the heart of the Father. It's that same heart in Jesus Christ. We see in this story the older brother of what not to do. We see also in the story of God what an older brother is supposed to be like because we all have an older brother. We have a co-heir in the kingdom and his name is Jesus. We have an older brother who shows us what love is supposed to look like. This is what it's supposed to look like. Life magazine ran an article, late 70s, early 80s, something like that, and and recounted the story of the, the Dawson brothers in the Vietnam War. True story, Daniel Dawson, Drafted into the military, he flew a reconnaissance plane over enemy territory in Vietnam, over Viet Cong-controlled jungle when his plane went down. Nobody heard from him again, presumed dead. His older brother back in the U.S., that wasn't good enough. His older brother, Donald, he sells everything. that He sells his house and he sells his car. He buys passage, not to Vietnam. He couldn't get in, but to a neighboring country. And he, he, he stocks up on all the supplies he needs, the pack, the shoes, the food, the water, the canteens. And he sneaks across the border and he, and he hacks his way through a Viet Cong controlled jungle as an American. And he goes from village to village and town to town and he just pulls out a little leaflet, a picture of his brother and he says, have you seen this man? He pulls out other leaflets of the airplane that he went down in and he just distributes them to the villages and they say, you're crazy, man. Maybe. But I gotta find my little brother. He's around here somewhere and if he's alive, I'm going to find him. That is an older brother. The Viet Cong, they they had a word for him. As this legend and this rumor continued to spread throughout the villages, they called him the Antoi Fikong. Just loosely translates, the brother of the pilot. 
That's what an older brother does. That's what an older brother is supposed to do. And when Jesus tells this story in Luke chapter 15, he tells this story, literally, church, on his way, on the road to Jerusalem. Every once in a while, there's a little marker in the passage on his way while he was journeying to Jerusalem. He was telling this story on his way to his own death. That is who your older brother in Jesus Christ is. He's the kind of guy that on his last night alive, a Thursday, he would gather together with his closest friend, these 12 guys, one of them he knew would betray him. But you know, who you're, you know who your older brother is? He's the kind of guy that would invite his old, he was the kind of guy that would invite his betrayer to his last meal on earth before his death. That's one kind of love. What kind of mercy is in the compassionate heart of God. And now we see in the story, we see in the story the father pleading with this guy, with this brother. There's a party happening inside. There's music and there's dancing and there's food. Would you join in? And the genius of Jesus is that he never finishes the story. He never tells us what happened. He just kind of leaves it hanging there. Because for Jesus, it didn't matter what somebody did 2,000 years ago in a made-up story called a parable. That's not what matters. What matters is what you do today when you walk out of this place. That's the point. People are always the point. Now listen to me. People are always the point. That's why it's today as we gather together and we're celebrating, we're celebrating what God is doing. We're having a party. There's not a fattened calf. Sorry, COVID prevented it. We're going to have a whole theme behind this, I promise you. But, but no, we are celebrating what God has done. What God has done through Encounter Church, what God has done to bring, bring people far from God to new life in Him, we're celebrating the fact that God has put it on our hearts to start a new church. We're celebrating that God gave us a destination, a zip code. And we're celebrating that God also gave us this incredible building. We're celebrating that God gave us a tab of a half million dollars worth of expenses. And we're celebrating that we're already halfway there with just one gift of that previous church to say, listen, we want to join in this effort. Join the heart of the Father. Join the celebration to bring people far from God to new life in His Son, Jesus Christ. We're celebrating that. But there's also like the, the father's heart. He's out there. He, he's asking the older brother, would you join in? Because as fun as it is watching in the stands this thing play out down below on the field, it's even more exhilarating to get in the game. And so that's what I'm saying. I'm asking you to get into the game, to join the celebration, to join the mission of the father to bring people far from him to new life in him. And it, on one hand, I want to ask you, and I want to ask you to pray as I continue to ask you all to pray for this project because if it happens, it's because of God. It's not because of us. But I'm also asking you to sacrifice for this incredible mission 
to make a financial sacrifice. So here's what we're going to do. And I hope then pray this doesn't come off as, as too much or coercive. I just, I, I've been challenged earlier, don't alienate, don't cut off the people of God from the mission of God. So I'm just inviting you along. You got one of these cards when you came in today. I'm going to ask you just to, just to pick it up and just to hold it if you're here in, in the room today. Just hold the card right now. That's all. Just hold the card, and we're going to pray here in just a moment. But if you're online, visit this site. If you're watching on YouTube, as I know most of you are, grab your phone. Find another device. Go to encounterchurch.org slash furtherfaster. And check it out. There's, a, there's an online pledge card option. What we're going to do right now is we're going to take just a moment to come on in and join the celebration, to say yes to God and have a party together on mission. Because 2,791 people are waiting to come on home. I've been asked a bunch of times where I got that number and why it's so specific. <laughs> we ordered demographic studies. Who's there? We learned a lot about the area before we decided it was God's will for us to go there in obedience saying yes. And that's the number that our researchers came up with. That's how many people, 2,791 people live in and around Fulton Heights, Grand Rapids, who don't yet know Jesus. It's about them. It's not about me. We're going to take a moment. We're going to pray about this. And as you do, I just encourage you as a couple of notes. This isn't about just us. It isn't about me and it, it isn't about you either. It's about your one. It's about the person in your life, your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, your colleague, somebody in your life who doesn't yet know Jesus. It's about them. It's about the 2791. You know, when my wife and I, when we first got married, we showed up to church, <laughs> which doesn't seem like a big deal, except for like looking back, you know, and just thinking about it. Somebody had to make that church. Somebody had to do that thing. Somebody had to invest and somebody had to pour in. And that person may never even have sat in that seat that we sat in for that first day. And now you guys get to do that too. I get to do that too. I love Kentwood. I'm going to be here. But I am so committed to this thing because I know one of the two 2,791 people who don't yet know Jesus are going to sit in that seat. And I'm thrilled for that. It's not about me. It's not about the kid space. It's not about the paint. It's not about the sound system. It's not about the building. It's about the people. And it always has been. And just a, a moment, like I said, we're going to fill out those cards and we're going to pray together. And as we do, maybe you're brand new here. Or maybe you started worshiping over the summer. Maybe you're watching online, and this is totally new. That's okay. You don't have to have gone here for eight or nine years in order to partner along in this journey. And to that end, and sharing this vision with a family around here at the church, they said, we are so thrilled about this thing. We want people to know the joy inherent in partnering with the Father and celebrating this incredible mission. And so every gift, large or small, every single one is going to be matched with $100. So if what you can do as a student or what you can do as somebody who's just trying to figure life out or whatever it is, is, is a dollar or five, that becomes 101, 105 because there isn't such thing as a small gift in the kingdom of God. So join the celebration. Join the party. And as we do, we're going to pray. I'm going to ask you to pray before you fill out that card and before you visit that site. And I'm going to pray not for us, not for us to use reason-based giving, but revelation-based giving. There's a difference. 
Reason-based giving is giving that makes sense to us, giving that's calculated, giving that's based on our own capacity. Revelation-based giving is giving that's based on God. What do you, how do you reveal your gift, your number to me? What, what, what does that look like, God? And it's not based on my capacity. It's based on his capacity. And if this is going to happen, it has to be done from his capacity, not our own. So let's, let's take a moment right now. Let's pray together, God. We pray We pray for your revelation, God. We pray for your will to be known, God. We pray right now for a spirit of joy. We pray against a spirit of debt or obligation or older brother mechanical-like obedience, God. We pray for that to stay away. But we pray for the heart of the Father and the story that's pleading with us to come on in, join the celebration. Let's go. We pray for those 2,791 people who need to know your love and your grace. God, we pray for courageous and sacrificial hearts revealed in you. In your name we pray. Amen. So let's take just a few minutes. If you're led to, fill out those cards. They'll be in the buckets on the way out. Fill out the online pledge card as well. Church, would you join me and just stand up for just a moment as we finish out our time here together. Through our time at 9.15 and again worshiping at 10.45, we believe here that God moved through hundreds of people here in West Michigan and around the world. That God has blessed us in this incredible movement, joining us, inviting us to partner with him and bringing people who are far from God to new life in his son, Jesus Christ. We are so thrilled for your generosity shown through your gifts, through your prayers, through your partnership in this gospel. I echo those words from Paul in Philippians. I thank God every day for your partnership in the gospel. Let's not keep singing to God together, singing to this God who shows us his reckless love and chasing us down every single day. Amen. Let's worship together.